first lesson you always learn is called Hello World. They are literally teaching you the recipe for cross-site scripting. And so then houses just burn down all the time and people die. Sorry about that. It's expensive for us to change the curriculum. Can we have your money, please? It makes you look good if you want to like stroke your ego, but it doesn't really get the result that we're looking for, does it? Hey everyone, it's David Bombal back with a very special guest. She is the author of this book, fantastic book. Tanya, welcome. Thank you. Tell me about this book and tell me a bit about your journey because I believe there's some big changes recently that makes it fantastic for everyone watching. Okay, so I wrote that book because that book didn't exist. So I was a software developer and I switched over into application security. I was really, really excited to join and there was no book that would kind of teach me how to do that. There was the web app Hacker's Handbook, which taught me how to do buffer overflows, which is super nifty, but there wasn't one about like how to create a secure system development lifecycle, how to encourage software developers to write more secure code and all the other things. I started writing a blog because my colleague at the time at Microsoft dared me to. <laughs> and then... <laughs> I'm glad he did. I'm glad he did. <laughs> yeah. And then people were reading it and asking about it. And then publishers started writing me and saying, you should write a book. And I was like, me? No. Um, but eventually one of them said, what if you wrote the book that you wished someone could have given you? And so um, I'm dyslexic. And in Canada, that's considered learning disabled. But really, it's more that I learn in a slightly different way. And so I wanted to make a textbook that was really easy to read and understand. And so whenever I give public, I do public speaking or I, I give lessons because I, I teach secure coding and stuff, I'll explain the technical thing and then I'll tell a story. And then sometimes I'll do a little quiz or also show some code or sometimes I show a, a design or a graphic. And I try to show it in at least three ways if I, I want them to learn it. And so I tried to do that with this book. So the characters of Alice and Bob that were first created to introduce the idea of encryption in 1978, I had just been using them in my blog and when I would tell a story, I'm like, it's not Alice's fault. It's not that Bob is to blame. You know, let's look at the core issue of this security incident, for example. When I was trying to decide what to call my book, I had explained how I wanted to have these stories all throughout the book, which is not normal for a textbook. I wanted to have like little sidebars and little definitions and stories about me. And I was like, you know, a lot of people are suggesting I name it the application security handbook. I'm like, but I'm weird. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm weird. I'm the purple lady. And I'm so I'm like, I was thinking of calling it Alice and Bob Learn application security, and then eventually writing a whole bunch of books about what Alice and Bob learn. And the publisher said, I love it. There's nothing else like that with, he's like, you're, you're kind of adorable and maybe that's okay, right? And it's a, maybe a softer, more gentler introduction. I've had people tell me they read it over the weekend, almost like a novel. I'm really glad that people seem to like it and that it's just accessible and easy to understand. So that was my main focus, is just taking this really complex concept and industry and making it easy for people to get into it. I haven't read the whole book, but I've read quite a bit of it. And I love the way that you explain stuff. I've got a lot of markers here to ask you questions. Probably won't have enough time today, but hopefully I can get you back to, you know, ask you some more questions. I've seen this in so many textbooks and with a lot of the complicated security concepts, it's over everyone's head and you do a lot of training. So I love the way that you do this. So perhaps you can, you know, talk around that, but then also give us like, as an example, what CIA is, because a lot of people perhaps don't understand that who are watching. Okay, so CIA stands for Confidentiality, Integrity and Availability. Basically, it's the mandate 
or the goal of every IT security team around the world to protect the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of the data and the systems of your organization. So we are there to protect those things. That's why we get paychecks. And so I started teaching it in my very first or no, my second conference talk that I wrote because I would talk to software developers and say, hey, I want you to do this. And they would say, why? And they didn't understand yeah. why I was bothering them. So I started asking, has anyone seen this before? And I would show it, we usually show it as a triangle and almost no hands went up. And I was like, you know what? It turns out that security people are awesome at keeping secrets and we kind of suck at marketing. <laughs> <laughs> and so I started just telling more and more people about it because I remember someone saying, well, the CIA, and I thought, I'm a Canadian. I'm like, do they mean the Central American Intelligence Agency? Is that like what they, they yep. spies? And everyone, no, Tanya, that's not what they mean. <laughs> you know, I don't know if you want to give choose one of those as an example. I don't want to spoil okay, the book. No, no. In the book, Ellis and Bob have stories about their lives. So they both have health conditions. They both have jobs. They both have families. And so... An example of confidentiality, so in the book, Al, uh, Bob's sister gets divorced and she forgets to change some of the permissions on her picture sharing software. And then her ex-husband has copies of her pictures after they're divorced and she is like, that's an invasion of privacy, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, you know, this is where access control can be explained as a concept and why we want to do role-based access control, etc. So no longer in the role of husband, does not have access to family pictures anymore. And then Bob has a health condition. He has a pacemaker and he's not concerned about confidentiality. He tells everyone, I have a smart pacemaker. I'm like, this is awesome. Technology saves my life. But for him, integrity is important. So pacemaker makes sure that your heart keeps the same pace and it doesn't do erratic rhythms that could result in a person dying. And so it makes sure he's steady all the time. But if the pacemaker if the integrity was affected, so it said basically his heart should be at a different rate, that could kill him, right? It's very, very serious. The integrity of any medical device is top of the line. So the last one, availability. So if you look at an online store, if, if something like Amazon or AliExpress or Alibaba goes down for just one minute, that's millions and millions and millions of dollars that could hurt that business. It's a huge thing. I'm not sure if you noticed, but Cloudflare, had a problem. Everyone said it was um, DNS, but it was uh, not DNS or something related to that. But anyway, Cloudflare is a content delivery network and it had a problem. And then it took down hundreds of other sites. And as a result, availability was affected by for hundreds and hundreds of organizations. And that is just, um, it's an absolute nightmare for an IT security person. I wanted to ask you, like, uh, I went a bit off track there, but why purple? And what's this big news that's great news for, you know, everyone watching? Okay, so I started as a software developer and then I became a penetration tester. So a penetration tester tests the limits of your system and if it can make it do things it should not do. So it is offensive style security. And I don't mean that you swear words all the time. I mean that they're they're like battering against your defenses and that is called red team. So that's offensive security, but defensive security is called blue team. And so those are the people that help do patches, help fix code and help make cyber defenses. I was a pen tester, but I kept helping to fix the bugs and I kept coming back to do more work with the devs 
And then I switched into application security because that was the right place for me. And people kept joking, you can't choose if you're red team or blue team, I guess you're purple team. And then I needed to make a Twitter handle, this is so many years ago, and I just wanted to make a Twitter handle so I could read what everyone else was saying. And I was like, I'll just use my email address, which is she hacks computers. And Twitter said, that's too long. And so my friend said, well, why don't you just switch out purple for computers because you're that person that can't make up her, her darn mind of which team you want to be on. And I was like, okay, so she hacks purple. And then people just started referring to me as the purple lady and the purple security. And so one day this guy was teasing me and he's like, you know, you show up and you're supposed to be all about purple, but your hair is still brown. And so just to play, so I love like soft pranks. So the next time I knew he was yep. going to be somewhere, I put all these purple streaks in my hair and he laughed so hard he started crying. It was awesome, like really good prank. And so then I really liked it. So I just kept it. And so when it came time to name my company, at first I started with She Hacks Purple, but then men thought they weren't invited. And I was like, oh no, no, everyone is welcome. So I changed it to We, so We Hack Purple. So everyone felt included and welcome and invited. Um, and so the really, really super exciting news is that Bright Security, so they're my friends, basically. They started Bright just before, and they were named Neuralegion then. And um, I started We Hack Purple and they said, you know, come join us. And I was like, no, I really, I want to help people join our industry. Like, this is really important to me. It's cool you're building this awesome hacking tool. So I joined as their advisor, but kept doing We Hack Purple. And so they did this funding round. They did this series A funding round and they raised lots of money. And then they called me and they're like, hey, so we were thinking, you know, what we're going to do with our new money. And I was like, oh, cool. And they're like, we want you to help us spend it. And I was like, oh, cool. And they're like, on you. And I was like, oh, what? And they're like, can we buy your company so our two companies can finally just be one company? And they're like, we know you want to give all your content away. And so we'd had a few discussions with a bunch of companies that wanted to buy us but some of them want to make our content just cost way more. And I was like, no, that's the opposite of what we're trying to achieve. And they're like, we know that it's important to you to share all of your knowledge with the whole world. So if you come join Bright, we will make the Academy free for everyone on the planet. And I was like, oh. yeah, so from now on, if you join, so instead of having an Academy and a community, we just took all the courses and put them in the community. So it's all in one place. And so now the community, well, the community was free before, but now all of the We Hack Purple full-length courses, all of them are free. And so you can learn application security, secure coding, um, how to put a dynamic scanner into your pipeline and make a CD, CI-CD pipeline, Azure security, like there's a whole bunch of stuff. And um, it's kind of a dream come true. And so now I work for Bright and I do developer relations. And what that means is I speak at conferences and I write blog posts about stuff that I was doing for free before. That's fantastic. <laughs> And I can pay all my bills and my whole team came with me, which was really exciting because I was like, well, I worked so hard to find these people. And they're like, no, no, they're coming. I'm like, so it's, it's I love pretty it. awesome. Sort of my motto is, is motivate and educate. I'm really trying to make education either free or low cost because not everyone is born into a part of the world where there's a lot of money or have parents, you know, with lots of money. So it's really, this is fantastic. So if someone wants to learn more about like application security, secure code and stuff, they just can go to wehackpurple.com, is that right? If you go to community.wehackpurple.com, it'll just take you straight there. And you just have to give us your name, your email address, and then promise to abide by the code of conduct. And it's a pretty easy to abide by the code of conduct. Just don't trash our sponsor, which is bright. And that's pretty easy to not do. And then, you know, 
no racism, homophobia, etc. Just have professional conversations. And so, so far we've actually haven't had to throw out a single person, which is awesome. We had to have a discussion only one time with someone and they said they wouldn't do it. And then we're like, cool. And they've been good ever since. We have a big team of volunteers that help us moderate. And we have events, like several events per month now, because we have so many helpers. And then we have some new courses coming out and basically, yeah, we run the whole thing and it's free. So please join us. Everyone is nice there. I wish that this existed when I joined AppSec because there, exactly. yeah, so there was OWASP and OWASP is amazing. And honestly, David, so like most of my career has been made on public speaking and I only started doing public speaking for the sole reason that then I could get in free to conferences because I couldn't afford to pay. <laughs> Because the Canadian dollar is just nothing compared to the American dollar. And we pay a significant percentage of our income to tax. And I remember like looking at some of uh, the courses online for some of the competitors to We Hack Purple. And I'm like, that's 20% of my take home salary for the year. I can't afford that. Like what? And so I wanted to make a thing that could have helped past me, if that makes sense. So I'll put the links below. For everyone who's watching, please go and see the links below. And they can also follow you on Twitter, is that right? And other places, uh, is it LinkedIn, Twitter, where's the best place to get hold of you? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter the most, but I also do LinkedIn. I'm not allowed more connections on LinkedIn. I've reached the maximum number, and so they've cut me off, which stinks, but you can follow me there. I also have um, shehackspurple.ca, so there's a newsletter, my blog is there, and you can just email me directly if you want to, tanya at shehackspurple.ca. If you want to get into get the free courses, use the links below. Let's get some technical content um, to help people sort of set a baseline and get some baseline knowledge. In your book, right, right in the introduction, you say, um, you may not be aware that the number one reason for data breaches is insecure software. So that's obviously a huge problem, but it sounds like there's not enough people who are qualified for this. Is that right? Yeah. So that quote is from the Verizon Breach Report. I've been reading it since 2015, but the years before that, we also unfortunately were number one, which sucks. I'd rather us not be on that yeah. list at all. I feel part of the reason for data breaches is that there's not enough application security folks to fill every role. There's lots of open job postings right now and all of them want us to have 10 plus years experience, which I'm only on year nine of my security. Like I'm on year 25 of my tech journey, but only year nine. So I'm like, if I don't qualify, like who qualifies for this job, buddy? It's ridiculous, yeah. But on top of that, I think one of the, biggest reasons is that basically we're just not teaching basic security hygiene to any new software developers. So they go to university, they go to college, they go to a boot camp, and the first lesson you always learn is called hello world, where you, you just code out yep. hello world. But I call it hello insecure world because they are literally teaching you the recipe for cross-site <laughs> scripting. The first thing you learn to do is put hello world on the screen. The second thing you learn to do is ask their name and then they put their name in and then you reflect it onto the screen. There's no input validation. We don't talk about output encoding. And then that is literally the perfect recipe for reflected cross-site scripting. And so it's very frustrating that after all this time, it's still being taught how to do it insecurely from the very first day. And so none of these boot camps usually cover anything to do with security. And most university and colleges, if they do teach something which is rare, it's usually either identity and access management, which is important. That is one of the many lessons I would want, or two, web app hacking. And so they'll teach you maybe how to hack the OWASP top 10 or some of the OWASP top 10. And they're, they're like, there, that's your security. I'm like, no, that is, no, that is like, you have scraped the tiny part of the surface. 
ah. And so when I started We Hack Purple, I spent a lot of time trying to work with different universities and getting them to take my book as a textbook. And I, I was like, can I make like some sort of electronic version of a, a course for you? And all of them, first of all, they said, you don't have a PhD and therefore we'll only pay you as yep. an adjunct professor. Yep. So I have been offered 4,000 Canadian dollars, which is less than 3,000 American dollars to work 10 hours a week for four months and grade all the assignments and grade all the exams. I'm like, wow. I could work at Walmart as a greeter and make more money. And they want to own my content after. I'm like, this is a sad, sad joke. And they're like, sorry, I guess we can't hire you. I'm like, you're a billion dollar organization. You can hire me. You just don't value what I bring to the table and you don't care that you are literally graduating thousands of software engineers and developers where you've taught them incorrectly how to make software. And it really bothers me. So I, I was hoping that some of them, and so my book is taught at a handful of universities by an adjunct professor who is essentially volunteering. And then I've guest appeared at many yeah. universities, but not having a PhD, I don't even have a degree, I have a diploma. Apparently that is sacrilege. And I'm just like, guys, <laughs> guys, get with the program. The world's changed. I mean, it, I can't believe it. Could you imagine, just imagine for a second. Oh yeah, we're a trade school and we teach people how to do electricity, but we don't bother to teach them any safety. And so then houses just burn down all the time and people die. Sorry about that. It's expensive for us to change the curriculum and exert effort. Can we have your money please? Because that's what they're doing. Right? But the trades would never get away with that. And they're significantly more regulated than software development and especially cybersecurity. And so I feel like we need to work towards having the government more involved. There has to be like a bare minimum of security that you're going to teach if you're going to teach people to code, etc. We're way too far away from that. Um, but my hopes with just me constantly sharing things for free or almost free, that things will move forward and things will get better. So sometimes um, so I did some book signings at RSA in San Francisco two weeks ago. People came up to me and they said, you know, I am a university professor and I'm going to teach some of this. I'm like, please go and totally plagiarize my courses <laughs> and like add whatever lessons you think are good to your courses so that we can get this message out there and get people writing more secure code. So there are people like essentially volunteering at these multi-million, sometimes billion dollar organizations to try to correct this problem, but it literally compounds every year because they keep making new devs that have not been tying security. It feels almost unfair. But there's a massive opportunity for people who are interested in security. So the audience watching, a lot of the audience um, are interested in pen testing, cyber, that kind of thing. So there's a huge opportunity for them, if I understand right, to do kind of what you did, where, which is help developers better secure their code, is that right? Yeah, so the way that I started, so as a software developer for a zillion years, and I was working at a place that I won't name, but they were super awesome and wonderful. And so I, I had a two-year contract and I had basically finished my entire project at the year and like four months or two month mark. And so there was an IT security and enterprise architecture team. They basically said, so we have an opening on our team and it's enterprise architecture, but basically you won't leave the security team alone. You fixed every security bug. You hired your own pen tester, your own code reviewer for your projects. Like you're the one that's mitigating these things and helping to get them fixed. You then went to all the other projects and started trying to correct their stuff. They're like, clearly you're obsessed and I guess we should let you on our team. What do you say? And I was like, <laughs> I was so excited. <laughs> and I just, 
kind of idolized them because they had all this knowledge that I didn't have. I joke, so there were three men on the team all named Eric. So I joked, you know, if you get me this job, you can call me Erica. <laughs> Yeah, just let me on your team and teach me. <laughs> well, all the Eric's were wonderful, but one of them really took me under his wing and taught me all about how to manage security incidents and how how to lead a, a team. So I'd already led many software development teams, but he taught me sort of like the differences with security and, and really, really helped me. And then I ended up being promoted to be the CISO of the team because I had so much upper management experience even though I wasn't the, the one with the most security experience, you can still, with good information, make the best decisions, right? And I leaned on my team, obviously, yeah. very heavily. Yeah. And so I also, at that same time, joined OWASP, the Open Web Application Security Project. So the first meetup I went to, I was super excited, and I kept telling them how this was so amazing. And then I met with two of the organizers, and then the next meeting, I was one of the leaders. <laughs> And I started organizing like capture the flight contests and just, I was like, I really want to learn this. They're like, cool, find someone that teaches that and invite them to speak for us. And so being on the organizing team meant I could decide the curriculum. And so I started just like, I don't want to say stalking, but kind of like following lots of people online, begging them to come and talk for us and like figuring out how we could get sponsors to cover some of their travel. And so then one day I was like, you know, it's been a few years and we've only ever had male speakers. We've never had any women speakers and we have almost no women in our meetup. And so I started inviting more women that are showing up, but the co-leader was like, well, Tanya, you should speak. And I was like, oh, no way. I am brand new. I have dipped my toe in the water. I don't know anything, but him and all the other people kept encouraging me. And so I said, okay, so I wanna do a very basic intro to like how to start pen testing because I'm an introductory level pen tester. So I'll teach them what I do. A bunch of them let me send them my slides and present and practice in front of them. And they helped like correct and add extra information. And they all, like five of them that helped me with my presentation, they all came to that night and were like, you got this, you're gonna be great. And I was so scared. They were so nice to me and so supportive and wonderful. And so then in the question period, there was a question I didn't know the answer to. I was like, oh, I don't know. And one of them was like, oh, I know, may I answer? And I was like, yes, that would be great. And so I realized like, you don't have to know everything. The audience really wants you to succeed. Yep. And they're just so unbelievably wonderful, that whole community. And eventually one of them was like, why don't you try applying to a conference? And I was like, oh no. And one of them, then he announced I was speaking at B-Sides and I was like, what, I didn't even, he's like, I guess you have to do it now. It's on the internet. <laughs> I, like, <laughs> I love oh it, I love it. But they're, they're it. just so unbelievably supportive. There are so many people in our industry that really want to help and welcome newcomers. So joining the community is one of the best things you can do. But I must say, you had how many years of dev experience before this? I mean, you worked at Microsoft and a lot of experience. Yeah, right? so I had 17 years dev experience, but I include my four years of college because I worked at a startup during that time. So I was software developing like 20, 25 hours a week and going to college. Um, and I actually started programming a few years before that in high school. So both my aunts and almost all my uncles and my dad are all computer programmers. So my dad decided not to go into it, but he took it in school and they decided to become a mechanic, which is totally fine. But like when all of your aunts and most your uncles and most your cousins are all computer scientists, it's like, what do you want to be when you grow up? You're going to be a great software developer, sweetie. <laughs> um, so I think that I didn't have the average upbringing. Um, and so, yeah, I, 
I was programming for like a long time before I actually got my first job in tech. And then I worked in tech and then I went to college and still worked in tech and then graduated. So I had a long time, a long time programming before I switched to security, but it, it's weird. So the IT security team at that place where I ended up joining the team, one day I was like, can I just come on a security incident? I promise I'll keep my mouth shut and I won't interrupt. I just wanna watch. And so they brought me, and of course I can read code, right? Like it, it's like reading English for me, it's so easy. And so we're in there and they showed this thing on the screen. I'm like, oh, that's code. And they all look at me and I was like, that's SQL injection. And they're like, what? You can read that? And it was like obfuscated, but I just sat there and like played around with it. I'm like, oh, if you like URL decode it, it's this. Oh my gosh, that's very bad. Oh, I see what happened. And they're just like, come sit at the table, Tanya. Tell us what you see. And then I was on the team for that incident and then I got to investigate and then I figured out like how to track our data and what happened. And it was just so ridiculously exciting. And I'm like, oh, well, I'll just decode all the data for you. I'll just write a PowerShell script. And they're like, you can just write a tool for that. I'm like, oh yeah, give me like 10 minutes. And they're like, you know PowerShell? I'm like, not yet, but I'm sure it's like Perl. <laughs> just <laughs> <laughs> And so like all my background kind of came close. I'm like, where are the logs for this? They're like, there's logs? I'm like, yeah, of course there are. I'm just like plowing through things. And so they had to get used to having a super nerd on their team. They're very patient with me. And sometimes they'd look at me and be like, are you sure? I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I think if you can code, it really helps you in life. It's like one of those skills that really helps you. And that's what I love about your book. And I want to get back to some of the book is you take complex topics and you simplify it. So the first one I want to hit you with is what is DevOps? When I started, there were a whole bunch of things. And then the industry was like, waterfall's the way. And waterfall is a really slow methodology of creating software where you make a list of exactly what you want, then you design out the plan, then you code the plan, and you wait this whole time, and then you test it. And then at the very end, you show the client and they're like, that's not at all what I meant. Around 70% of waterfall projects fail. So that's what was making software development quite expensive. And so then some brilliant humans came up with Agile and Agile was a new methodology and way to build software where it's like, well, let's do it in smaller chunks instead of you know waiting a year to show the client, let's gather a bunch of requirements and we'll build part of it and show them and check it out with them. Like, is this what you meant? Is this what you want? Okay, cool, we'll take that feedback and then we'll build the next part and we'll adjust the previous part and you, you do work in something called sprints. So two weeks or three weeks, you spend building a chunk of software and you show it to them and you get feedback way, way more often. And so then that was way more successful. DevOps is another methodology, but also a cultural shift. Unlike agile, where it's like you do these 10 things, boom, you are doing agile. DevOps is also an entire mentality change. Software developers, and I totally did this, we would write code, and we would test it and we're like, we're cool. And then we would throw it over the wall to operations team and be like, you're a problem now, bye losers. And then they'd have to try to support it. And then we started doing agile, we started changing it on them all the time. And they're like, why, why must you change things and bring down my beautiful servers? That was very frustrating for the ops folks. I know that they didn't love all of us devs. And so with DevOps, the dev and ops team comes together as one. And so I have to be concerned that the platform my app sits on is solid, secure, and reliable. 
And so I have to test that. And so part of DevOps is the automation of testing and releasing. So we have this software that is called a CICD pipeline, sometimes called a DevOps pipeline, but basically it is software where it will build your app, which is what a compiler can do. And then it copies it onto a dev server. And then it runs a bunch of automated tests that you choose. And then you can run automated tests on the code that you wrote, like the actual if then else code you wrote. And then you can, put it on a dev server and run a bunch of things you want, then you can have it automatically go and release to another server. Or you can say, you know, if this test fails, I want you to stop. We used to do that 100% in a manual fashion. So this is just the first part of DevOps. The beauty is that because we do automation and because it's a perfectly repeatable process, there are way fewer errors and we can repeat tests over and over again to make sure we haven't added a new feature, but broken the first feature when we did that. DevOps has three specific things that you must do in order to be doing all of DevOps. And so the first one, they're often called the ways, the three ways of DevOps. And so this is in the DevOps handbook and the Phoenix project, which are two books I highly recommend. And so the first way is that you need to emphasize the efficiency of the entire system. So I used to write code and be like, here you go, suckers, to the other teams. And let's say, you know, I hadn't given them the settings for the server or, or whatever, like that wouldn't be optimized, right? And so the efficiency of the whole system, not just Tanya's part. And so with security teams, this is especially important because we are notorious for putting up gates, stopping things, making you wait on us, et cetera. None of that is acceptable in DevOps. So then the second way of DevOps is fast feedback. And I like to emphasize this with security people that that means fast feedback to the correct person and that it must be accurate. So we can't give a ton of false positives. We can't say, sure, here's the fast feedback, but you have to log into some separate system that's over here and we're not gonna give you access and hide it from you because it's so sensitive. The second way, this fast feedback, basically at the very beginning, they wanna hear feedback from the security team. Like, hey, here's the requirements of what we're planning to build. Anything you want to add here, guys? And so this is a thing that the security team is not used to. And then the third way of DevOps is that you specifically want to ensure you are taking time to improve your daily work. Sometimes it's called continuous learning. So just listening to this podcast, like listeners are doing right now, that is you doing continuous learning. For me, as a security person, not only does that mean I need to continue to learn security stuff, but like last year, I released a static application security testing tool at one of my client's offices. And every time someone checked in code, everyone would get a response about what the bugs are in their entire repository. And they said, this is spam, Tanya. I don't know where my bugs are. I'm confused. <laughs> and I'd rolled it out according to the specifications of the, the company. And I was like, well, this is crap. So I changed it and I removed that entire deployment and I spent three full days making a separate organization for every single team and their org. So whenever, let's say, you know, team A checks in code, 20 minutes later, they get a report saying, okay, so those old bugs are still there. You haven't fixed those. You did fix this one and we found this new one. What do you think? Everyone, first of all, everyone else would not see their bugs. It was just their work. They would get really fast feedback, 20 minutes, from the moment you checked in your code is very, very good. And I reduced a lot of false positives and that's a long story, but basically they started getting feedback that was very quick. And so I worked hard to improve my daily work 
by creating efficiency for everyone else. So I did the first way of DevOps, the second way of DevOps, and the third way of DevOps at the same time. And basically everyone was really pleased with it, which is what matters. Because if you're a security person and you're causing problems for everyone, you're not gonna be very popular. But if you yeah. work hard to, I don't wanna say to please them, but to enable them to do their job securely, yeah. they have a lot of respect for that. And so they're really pleased with that. And then when I asked for my next change, they're like, Hells yeah, let's do it. Yes, totally got their confidence now. Do you use this term CICD? Yes. Oh, let me tell you what it means. So CICD stands for continuous integration, continuous delivery, continuous deployment. Continuous integration means basically doing regression testing and integration testing at the same time regularly. So every time you check your code into your repo, you can set off your CICD software. And what it will do is it will check that your part that you just changed works with every other part correctly. So that's the integration testing. You usually retest a whole bunch of things with unit tests, that's regression testing. And ideally you have security testing, stress testing, and all sorts of other things going on as well. But the idea is, is you continually check over and over, many times per day even, that what you wrote didn't break everything else. So the integration of pieces. Continuous delivery means using an automated system to do that. I can't imagine manually having to retest the same thing eight times a day and not just eventually one day yelling yep. and screaming at everyone and running out quitting. Just like, ah, I hate all of you. My job's so boring. <laughs> <laughs> so continuous delivery means using an automated system, like a pipeline software system to do this for you. And then continuous deployment means, so this is a special thing and you don't have to do this in order to be doing DevOps, but basically it means you have set up your continuous integration and continuous delivery system in such a perfect way, you have so much confidence that there's no manual intervention. If every single thing passes, you just let it release out into production. Some organizations do that. You are usually a more mature organization where you feel that you are confident enough to just release out into prod without having a human having to check over things and giving the final approval. And so not everywhere does that and that's okay, but that is a thing that we strive for. So this is where the big difference is from the old waterfall days. Developers are releasing code 10 times a day or whatever it is. And without this CICD, it would be insane trying to make sure that there are no mistakes. Is that right? You'd have to have like a, a thousand QA engineers for one dev. Like you would never yeah. keep up. And right, yeah. right now, um, so GitHub released an article in January. And so I used to say there's 100 devs for every one security person, but it has changed and is now approximately 500 software developers for every one security person. And when I read that, I was just like, oh my gosh, this makes so much sense of how my life is going. <laughs> In your book, you talk about the SDLC, the system development lifecycle, and maybe you can just talk about that. And then you've got this thing like pushing left. Then you've got this thing that if companies only do the security stuff at the end, it's costing a fortune. But if they do it in the beginning, it's a lot cheaper. So I'm assuming this is the whole rationale of well, why are we doing this or why are we talking about this? Is that right? Yes. Okay. So the system development lifecycle is the steps that you must follow in order to create software. So you can develop other systems using it too. And I've had people criticize me and say, you know, what you're showing isn't DevOps. So there's five steps, but with DevOps, you are just continuously doing all of the steps. The first step is requirements. And I believe some of those requirements should be from the security team. Let's say you're building a beautiful GUI front end, and then you're building, you know, five APIs in the background. 
There's certain just web app security requirements. You're a front end, cool. I need you to do these things. You're building an API, cool. I need you to do these other things. When you are doing DevOps, you still have to have some sort of requirements of what you're building. It's not just developers in the wild west building anything they feel like. It's like, I'm gonna build a calculator. It's like, but we're at, you know, like a, a different company that does something else. That's not what happens. Like you do yep. need requirements. Then there's the design phase where there's lots of options of different types of security stuff you can add, like doing threat modeling or doing, you know, like a whiteboard analysis of what your system looks like and making sure you have security controls in every place you should. So a security control means a thing that does some security for you. So that could be a login screen. That could be you adding administrative privileges for someone. So anything that has to do with security, that code or system or software that you use to do that is called a security control. Then the third phase of the SDLC is coding. And that's obviously the super fun one. The next one is testing and then deployment. So in CICD, basically they have the eternity sign, but basically you grab some more requirements, you design it and code it you test and release it. You have some more requirements, you design it, you code, you test and release it, and you just repeat over and over in the eternity symbol. So you still have to do those things. They're just not the way that a waterfall team does it. And there's still tons of companies all over the planet using waterfall, and they are successfully releasing software, but DevOps is way more fun. And so then the idea of shifting security left or pushing security left means starting security right at the beginning. So left means earlier. So if you draw out the system development lifecycle, the five steps in a row, because I speak English, that means we write from left to right. And so the further left we go on a page, the earlier we are in this picture that I've drawn. And I did not make this up. I probably would have found a better way to say it. I don't know why we have to have like this weird abstract concept, but basically we want our security in the requirements phase and still have some in the design phase and still have some, but most of the places that I had worked until Microsoft, they would just hire a pen tester at the very, very end. And when I became a pen tester, the same thing happened. And so you show up, the devs have had no requirements given to them. No one took a look at their design. No one gave them any tools to check their stuff themselves. They didn't give them secure coding classes. They didn't learn in college or university. You know, the testing phase, they had QA and user acceptance testing. But then the pen tester rolls in and is like, bang, bang and uses a bunch of tools <laughs> yep. that they don't have access to, that they've never learned about, that they don't have their own copy of, so they could have fixed it weeks ago. So I remember saying like, you know, it looked like I was this really awesome pen tester that was so cool, but really I was the first person who ever looked and the devs had zero support. And so then of course I found problems. It's not like I was some sort of amazing hacker of all the things, genius. I was really middle of the road and I would do, you know, like use a bunch of tools and do a bunch of tests and I'd look at things manually and go through all the things in my head. I know to check and I'd be like, voila, I found a bunch of stuff. And so when I was a pen tester, companies would call me and say, so in three months, can you come in and do this? I'd say, cool, but can I come in later this week and just meet with your devs for an hour or two now? And we would just draw out their design. And I'd say, you know, I want you to fix this and this. And I'd look at the requirements. I'm like, can we add these five things? And then I just scan their servers. I'm like, you're missing these patches. Could you please fix these things? And I, if their app was actually running, I'd give it a little quick scan. I'd be like, can you fix that stuff? And I'm like, I'm gonna come back in three months and I'm gonna smash the crap out of your app. You will look cool if you <laughs> fix all the things I told you. So then I would come for my final assessment. Maybe I would find some lows and some mediums, but I wouldn't find any highs or criticals because I already told them about them. And my boss was like, 
this report is awful. You couldn't find any highs or criticals. I'm like, oh, well, I did three months ago and I got them to fix it. And he's like, no, Tanya, like we made it, we need to make them look bad so we look good. I'm like, no, we don't. And so clients kept asking for yeah. me. And he's like, why does it take you 14 days to do a pen test when everyone else can do it in 10? I'm like, why do the clients ask for me instead? And then he didn't like that. Um, and so I found a job somewhere else. <laughs> and apparently what I was doing was called application security. Like I would literally sit with the devs and be like, can I help you fix this bug? See this, you're doing a block list. What I need you to do is an approved list. Here's how you do that, blah, blah, blah. And here's why. And like showing them how to test their own code so that they can figure it out themselves. And my boss was just like, what are you doing over there? I heard you were sitting with a dev. I was like, well, he said I could. <laughs> And so I wasn't a very good pen tester in summary. And I found the right place for me, which is good. <laughs> You've mentioned in the book, you can do like shock and awe type stuff. It makes you look good if you want to like stroke your ego, but it doesn't really get the result that we're looking for, does it? And it's really expensive because, so what would happen yeah. is I, I would give them this pen test report and they're supposed to go live in two or three days. And the software developers would look at me like, I'm gonna have to work all night now. Like my weekend is toast yeah. and I'm going to maybe yeah. be able to fix three of these things and we're going to just barely test them and push them out the door with basically a band-aid on top. This sucks. And I was like, why didn't I tell them about this yeah. three months ago? They'd have tons of time to fix it. And then I started thinking, well, what if at the beginning I just asked for what I wanted? And so I just started meeting with devs at the kickoff meeting. I'm like, hey, we're doing a project. Cool. I have like 14 things that I want to tell you. And so some of them are requirements and some of them are stuff I want to schedule into this project. Like I want to have time to run a SaaS tool on your app and give you the important bugs that I find. So not all of them, but the ones that scare me. And I want you to have time to fix them. So can we schedule like two weeks for that? And then I want to run, you know, an automated dynamic task scanner on it. And then I need time for, so like I can run that overnight. We can come check it out in the morning but I need you to have time to fix those things. It doesn't matter if I find stuff, if no one fix it. And so I started building it into the project schedules and the devs were way less stressed and it cost way less. We would pay a pen tester $25,000 to come in and just be like pew pew. He'd literally just do a VA scan and a DAS scan and copy that into the thing and say 25K please. I'm like, you're like printing money, buddy. We started by saying that, you know, a lot of hacks are because of badly written or poorly written applications from a security point of view, but the developers weren't trained that. So how do we solve this problem? And it sounds like that's what you're on a mission to do. Yeah, I feel like, so when I started my first AppSec program, I, so I've learned a lot since then. And I also stumbled into success on a bunch of things. So I'm very extroverted. I'm very, very social. I love talking to everyone and it sounds weird, but devs are like my people. And so when I was deciding what I would do in college, I remember thinking in high school, well, my favorite people in, in my high school are all the ones in my software development class. And so the idea of going to school for four more years with just those people, I was like, this is going to be awesome. And also there are so many boys. <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> I like, I like There's like no competition. This That's is funny. the best. And so... <laughs> I, I joined this group and I went to school with them. And so when I started doing security, I would always just go talk to the devs about it. And I'd say, so this happened. How can we fix it? Can we do this together? And previously, a lot of the security people I worked with, they would never talk to the devs. They would just be like, a pen tester's coming next week and he'll talk to you. And it was a lot of like ominous stuff and less friendly stuff. And so I remember I 
I said, okay, so there's a whole bunch of you and there's only one of me. So there's literally 150 of you and there's one of me and I am a beginner. So I'm gonna show you all how to use a dynamic scanner. And I want each one of you to scan your app just once and fix highs and criticals for me. And then we can do this. So I just literally, I made my first presentation ever and I was so scared. I was way more scared to present in front of them instead of the public because I'm like, these are literally my peers. Like I work with them every day. I really care what they think of me. <laughs> like I eat lunch with these people and I don't want them to think I'm a moron. So I was really scared and they were so nice and so gentle <laughs> and awesome. And so then I had this sandbox area and I'm like, all of us are gonna go pew, 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 pew. And I showed them how easy it was. I'm like, you can hack an app in like an hour. It's so easy. And so I gave all of them the knowledge. And then the next month they're like, what are you gonna teach us? And I was like, oh, so I just started showing them something else I thought was cool. And then I showed them another thing I thought was cool. And then I ran out of presentations. And so I just went, this might sound really ridiculous, but I went on the OWASP YouTube channel and I just watched lots of talks until I found one that I thought was just perfect for us. And I invited them in and I was like, this person's presenting on the screen. And so we watched part of it and then we paused and we talked about it. We watched more and we talked about it. And I brought bagels and cream cheese because carbs is a way to attract people. <laughs> and, and I'd also like bring cookies and other things. I'm like, I have sweets, let's learn. And so I feel like AppSec people spend a lot of time educating devs and like working with them and helping them. And so that is one way that we can start kind of moving towards the end state that we want where software developers are making fewer bugs because they already know what they're supposed to do and they already have tools at their disposal that you've given to them and showed them how to use. Like there's lots of tools they can use right from their IDE or their command line interface. They are just automated that will tell them things that are wrong, but they need our support. We can't just make them read our minds. And so I feel like AppSec's a really social butterfly type of job. <laughs> Like it's technical, but it's also like you have to persuade people, show them things, teach them things. And so if you hate people, it's a really bad job for you. We shouldn't mince our words because the, the question I've got for you is most people watching this are going to be thinking, okay, um, is, is this a job for me? And are there jobs? Is, is there demand for these kind of skills? Are you seeing like companies are realizing that this is a major problem and they need to employ application security people? Yes, there are so many jobs. It is utterly ridiculous. So one of the problems in our industry right now is that every company wants to hire someone with 10 years experience. There are very, very few people who actually have 10 years experience because it's only become quite popular in the past five, six years. So like when I first started, there were no official application security rules in the government where I was working. And then eventually there was one team and obviously I instantaneously joined it. And then eventually there was one more, et cetera. And so I would be that weird dev that was really excited about security and I'd have no legitimacy. I'd have no enforcement capability. So I would just be like, I want you to fix these bugs. And a lot of devs would say, cool, like, can you help or give me the thing? And they would just run with it. But some of them would say, go away, Tanya, I have work to do. And I had like no recourse. Yeah. Right, so I got really, I literally read lots of books about persuasion and negotiating so I could get better at it. Um, but now there's tons of posts. And so when we started, we had Purple and we made this application security foundations program, which is free. At first we used to pair our graduates with recruiters and set up job interviews for them. And so the first year of We Hack Purple, we had a 98% finding a job in AppSec in the first 90 days rate. And so then we had a job channel where we would post 
basically like introductory level infosec jobs. And so now some companies are posting within the WeHack Purple community. There's also like a bunch of threads on Twitter, etc., where it's like, who's looking for a job, who's posting introductory jobs and, and things like that you can watch for. But basically I have gotten most of my jobs from community connections and networking. And so I volunteered at OWASP and then I ended up meeting my professional mentor and then he was getting a contract somewhere and he said, well, I'm not coming unless Tanya will come because I know she'll write all my reports for me. <laughs> she won't complain. <laughs> and she'll do all the crappy work I don't want to because she's junior. And I was like, yay! Um, and then I had one of my other, <laughs> so like a lot of my professional mentors and like community members would like throw me work, if that makes sense, or drag me along for something. And then now I pass work out to a lot of them and other people I've met. You having a professional mentor can help you find that first job. So I remember when my professional mentor said like, if you don't bring Tanya, I'm not coming. And the guy's like, well, no, but blah, blah, blah. And he's like, I'm not coming. It just, I have a zillion jobs. There's like 10 pad testers in all of the city. And I'm the most famous, like the most well-known one. I've got a hundred other job offers. I'm not coming unless you bring her. And so they brought yeah. me, right? And so when you have someone that will put themselves out on a limb for you like that, that's very powerful. I feel like if you can meet a lot of people, let them know you're looking and also at work, the place you currently work, go talk to the security team and tell them, this is my passion. This is what I want to do. If a spot opens up, I'm your person. And like, I just kept annoying the security team all the time at my work until they gave me a job. And I know that might sound really silly, but like it works. They had a spot open. They didn't even make me be called Erica. It was really great. I think for a lot of people watching, if they go to wehackpurple.com, you have training there. Do you also have this job thing or is that something that's no longer there? So, I mean, the training's free now, is that The it? training is free now. Oh, and so you just start with something called Application Security Foundations Level 1. And whether you're a nurse or a teacher or a software developer, you can start right there. We start at the very beginning. And then we slowly help you build a custom AppSec program and then you improve it, improve it throughout the courses. And so if you work somewhere, you can do it for your work and impress the pants off of them, or you can you know, make a fictional one, but ideally you learn, apply what you learn, learn, apply what you learn. That said, so our jobs channel now, it's just people within the community posting jobs. We don't have an official staff member that does that anymore because when we were required, like we, so we used to be seven people and we shrunk down to four people before the acquisition mostly because my sales team quit. So one of them took the AppSec Foundations program and he loved it so much, he switched from doing sales to being an AppSec professional. I was just like, I'm so frustrated. And <laughs> I love it. We had one person who wanted to go back to school, so I encouraged her to go back to school. And so we ended up just being four of us when the acquisition happened, which is totally fine. Um, but so the person that used to do the job matching, she's the one that went back to school. And we don't really have the capacity to do that. Plus to like, I don't know if you've ever been part of a, a merger and acquisition, but there's a lot of work involved with like pushing your stuff together, getting your processes to work really well, making sure. Yeah. And like, just, I want my teammates to like find friends in the new company and like connect. So we're one, we're not two separate things. So that's taken a lot of time, but basically there are still people posting jobs there, but there's way fewer than before, but you can post that you are looking and people will respond. And in the general chat, like anyone can post anything. So you can say, I'm new and I'm looking for this and people will probably reach out to you. There's maybe 3000 people in there now. Quite a few. It's very active. You've said in other podcasts and stuff that, um, you know, follow yourself and others on Twitter, you know, get involved in the community. You still advise doing that? Yes, definitely. 
There are some, so like I follow a lot of things on Twitter and there are a lot of weird things that happen on Twitter and not everyone is a nice person on Twitter. Yeah. Um, however, yeah. most of the people are nice to me because I am nice to start. And if you follow, like you pick who you follow carefully, basically if someone tweets something that makes me uncomfortable, I unfollow them. It's kind of like reading the newspaper. You don't get to pre-decide what the articles are. But unlike the newspaper, you can decide, I never want to see this article again. And so I just unfollow people that say things that I feel, you know, that are hatred or negativity, etc. I just want to hear cool infosec stuff and community happenings. And I, I really like it when people are like, I got a new job and I'm happy. I really love posting like, yeah, good job. Sounds weird, but it makes me feel happy to like kind of congratulate others. Yeah. But um, in the We Hack Purple community, it'll be a lot softer and gentler. Um, we don't let people harass others, etc. Swear words, racial slurs, etc. are not welcome. Like, I mean, if someone's like, I'm so damn tired of this crap at work, that's okay. But um, we try to be more gentle there. I also think that if you have a local community, that's a really great place to start. So most cities have either an OAS chapter, an ISSA chapter, an ISACA chapter. Some um, cities are starting to ask if they can open up a We Hack Purple chapter. So if you can find out what types of meetup groups or whatever they're called in your city, if you are okay with COVID, so like wear a mask to the event, go meet people. Or sometimes they have an online Slack. So I live just outside Victoria, British Columbia, and they have a Slack for everyone in the whole city. And we have thousands and thousands of people on there. And then they have one for women and non-binary folks. And we have 15 or 1600 women on there. And we all just chat, 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 chat. And so you can reach basically anyone you want. And we used to have a lot of events now because of COVID, we're a bit nervous. So we have more virtual events, but there's usually people organizing things. And they're usually really happy to have someone new join. And if you actually volunteer and help, they'll be ecstatic to meet you. And that is one of the best ways to get noticed is to volunteer. I agree. I mean, it, it, you make contacts, volunteer your time, help people, and doors open. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I don't say, I, I know a lot of people are upset, you know, don't work for free. But like what you did is you you went and spoke at conferences. Uh, you volunteered to help out and, and the doors open. Tanya, I, I wish we could talk for much longer. I know you've, you've got an appointment that you have to keep. Um, I wanted to ask you about like security requirements. Uh, I've got security fundamentals. You've got like insider threats, defense in depth and least privilege supply chain security. Um, I'll just hit you with that one. Okay. Um, just for everyone who's watching, the book's fantastic. There was so much security fundamentals in the book and you explain it so well. But one I wanted just, I got a, I got this typical picture where they talk about all modern infrastructure and then it's all held up by like a tiny piece of like open source software that some guy maintains without any thanks since forever. And one of the famous ones of that is Log4j. How would you manage that? Because that, that caused huge problems for people. How do you make sure that the code that you just like getting from GitHub is, is good. A supply chain, just to start at the beginning, means all the things that you need in order to build your product. And so in the book, I give a dollhouse as an example. And so you would need wood, you would need dye, you would need glue, you would need paper, you would probably need plastic. And so you need those, and then you need to form them into the things that you want. And so there's many steps along the, the way that you need in order to create the final product. And so that's called your supply chain. And so what has happened in the past is that we have had malicious actors attack one of the components used in a piece of software in order to cause a vulnerability in the final piece of software, and then they can attack the company or organization using it. And so that's a supply chain attack 
for software. There's also supply chain attacks where people, for instance, put poison in water or food ingredients. And that is obviously could have darker consequences. And so when you download something from the internet, a piece of software, one thing you could do is an integrity check. So make sure if there's a checksum that you actually check it or if there's a hash to hash it against, actually do that. That's one way we could start. Um, only download things from a trusted source. So for instance, if you're gonna get an image off of Docker Hub, good luck, because um, they let anyone host anything there. Instead, you should get it from a trusted repository where you know that it's safe. I still put cool stuff on Docker Hub and there are things I download from there, but I know that I need to scan it and make sure it's okay before I use it. So when we get stuff from GitHub, because that is basically where devs go to dev, a way that you could look at it so rather than just visually actually going through and manually doing code review, which would take a hundred years if you wanted to do that for every single yep. library or NuGet package or Ruby gem that you use, you can use something called a software composition analysis tool or SCA for short. Once in a blue moon, people say ska. I don't like that because I think of the music ska and I think of like a bunch of punk rockers with horns. But anyway, I digress. So if you use an SCA tool, um, what it can do is it takes the list of all your libraries or third-party components, any sort of thing included in your code but that you didn't write, and it compares it against a list of known bad stuff. These software composition analysis companies employ a ton of security researchers. So they take all of the stuff from the CVE database, the Common Vulnerability Enumerator database, so that's where people have reported vulnerabilities, so they are publicly known. They take those. Then they also take all sorts of things that aren't publicly known. So they search through different types of libraries, components, et cetera, and check them for vulnerabilities. And then if there are some, they usually report it and ask to have it fixed, but they also add it to their list. So if their clients are using that plugin, they're like, hey, that new Git package? Mm, I don't think so. We suggest you update to this version instead. All of that takes a matter of seconds. It's very quick to do an electronic automated cross-reference. That's all it is. The real thing that you're paying for, the value, is those security researchers making that magical list. So GitHub has something inside of it called Dependabot, and Dependabot will make a graph, like a beautiful graph of all your dependencies. So sometimes your app's up here, and then there's this huge pyramid below you. So let's say you have three libraries. Well, one of those libraries calls 12 libraries, and those 12 libraries call a total of 24 libraries. And before you know it, you actually have 100 dependencies. And so it'll show you a graph, which is pretty nifty. And you have to have that turned on, that's dependency graph, in order to use Dependabot, both of which are free if you have an open source free GitHub account, which I do, um, and lots of us do, like millions and millions of us. Um, and so then you turn on Dependabot, and what it does is it has a list and it does the comparison for you. The list is not the same at every software composition analysis company. I remember speaking to someone at Sneak a few years ago and they had 400 security researchers searching for bugs. Dependabot is brand new, it's smaller, it has fewer security researchers, so their list is probably shorter. So unfortunately, the lists aren't perfect. What happened with Log4j, so Log4j is basically a Java logging library. And if you wrote an app in Java, you probably thought, you know what I should do? I should do logs. Yes, you should. Please don't stop doing that. I had a lot of people say, we're not vulnerable because we never log. And I was like, no, <laughs> that's not the answer. <laughs> um, but basically it had a an unknown vulnerability in it and someone discovered that there was a vulnerability in it. 
and then it was very easy to exploit. So basically you just pasted some code into the URL address, press enter, and if they were vulnerable, you would have remote code execution, so like a shell onto the web server. So that is the highest possible level of privilege you could gain with the absolute least amount of knowledge and skill required to do it. You didn't even need to be logged in. You could do it completely anonymously and then control their web server. So that ruined my Christmas. Basically, I spent a lot of time responding with clients, like working to teach the public as much as I could about it to help them protect themselves. One of my clients, we had installed a software composition analysis tool and I'd already heard about it before they alerted us, but they alerted us only maybe two hours later. So they were quite fast and my client didn't have any. And I was like, yes, like the one client that I was doing the most work with. But then I found out there was a bunch of repos I didn't know about yet. So I connected them, etc. And it turned out we ended up being fine. Lots of people did not get such good news. And so we did a lot of defenses to make sure we'd be okay. We made some upgrade plans because we did have some Log4j that was so old that it was not vulnerable to that vulnerability, but was still terrible. I was like, we're not celebrating. We are not proud, okay guys? <laughs> um, so we made update plans, etc. But the, the point of the story is that like even a really amazing software composition analysis tool can't protect you against everything. There are still unknowns out there. But the best thing we can yeah. do is scan the vulnerability or scan the components we have and keep our components and dependencies as up-to-date as possible, which I know is very, very difficult. I'm a dev. I know that that is hard. I used to have a video of me updating my framework and it's five hours long. I did a live stream of me updating dot, .NET Core and it's five straight hours and people were like, she's still at it. Oh my gosh. I'm like, this is what devs do. When you're like, just patch it. You don't understand the effort level required. So, cause I had to update all these other dependencies and then I had to change some code. I had to rework a function and they're just like, whoa, it's so much work. I'm like, yeah, so don't be belligerent when you're like, just patch it. It's not just, don't add just, you don't understand how hard <laughs> this is. It's not, if it was just pressing a button, yeah. the devs, they would just press it. They're not lazy. Ah, oh, it's very frustrating when security people give advice and they don't understand the depth of effort involved in solving that thing. So it sounds silly, but yeah. me making that video, I would just send it to security folks and be like, this is how much that work is. This is how much. And I've been deving forever and still took five hours. I love what you're doing. You're educating both sides, aren't you? Because the developers are not getting the training that they need at university, it seems. They're not realizing the mistakes that they make. I did some videos where some developers were complaining and saying, don't be nasty to developers because you don't know what it's like to write code. So there was pushback from developers and I understand that. Tanya, there's so much in the book that I wanted to talk about. We never got I a chance. Come back. Um, like cross-site scripting. You should. If you, Please I'd do. Like we, we, we'll set that up. I'd love to get some like more technical stuff. Um, but you know, for, for people who are hungry, they can go to your website, they can get a whole bunch of technical information there. Yes, right? absolutely. So I have a newsletter that goes out once a month with a ton. Basically I list every single piece of content that I created that's free since the last newsletter. And then I invite you to events. Uh, and then We Hack Purple has a newsletter as well. So wehackpurple.com. And in that we have like one new technical article every week. And then we have a list of different events that involve around the whole community. And then we always have a silly meme to see if you read until the end. Uh, and then Bright Security actually has a newsletter as well, um, which my team has started to adjust. So we're adding even more technical articles to that now, but we're making sure that they don't just say the same thing. So if you want a whole bunch of free stuff, those newsletters are an opportunity. And then you could attend our live streams 
So we add Gribble as regular events, etc. So basically, if you follow me, I'm going to invite you to all sorts of things all the time, and a significant percentage will be free. That's brilliant. I'll add links below. So just for everyone watching, have a look at the links below. Get a whole bunch of technical content and free content. And Tanya, I really want to thank you, and I mean Bright as well, for you know making it possible to make this education freely available. Thanks so much for you know spending time with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a pleasure. <laughs>